Ah, uh, okay. So um, now we're back on to recording. Sorry if you missed that. We're on the backside. Uh, we're on page six, and we're talking about Abraham going down to Jacob uh, with this birthright and the promise to Abraham. So uh, in this case, Esau uh, represented um uh, a, a physical fleshly desire to take that over and Yahweh's purposes were, were filled, fulfilled in Jacob who had more of a heart for Yahweh. And so he says in 2814, your descendants will be like the dust on the earth and you will spread out to the West and to the East, to the North and to the South. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And so here it gives a little bit more detail it spreads out to the you know the, the people will be spread out north east west south didn't say that in the previous promises so a little more detail so now jacob has this and he has uh 12 sons and those are the 12 tribes and he ultimately passes on his blessing to joseph once again it's not to the oldest okay it, it's passed on to um through Yahweh's purposes, through Joseph, and it, you have to wait all the way 20 chapters later to Genesis 48, 15 to 16. So I want to stop for a second, and if you think about this, the story that we just started with started with um, Genesis 15. John's back, and he didn't him. There we go. So um, the book of Genesis is really about this Abrahamic promise. And it's the trail of this promise that started in Genesis 15 and goes all the way through to Genesis 50. So, uh, that, so Jacob has the birthright and, the, and this blessing. And that says it very quickly. Then he blessed Joseph. So that's it. That's all you hear. He doesn't, he doesn't repeat the whole promise. And he says, may the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly on the earth. So the scene is, which you're probably very familiar with, that Jacob is old, and he's, uh, um, it's time for him to bless Joseph and then his grandkids, and so Joseph's there, and Joseph says to his father, Jacob, they are my sons whom God has given me here. So he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on a frame's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from a frame's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. Now, who knows whether that was because Jacob's eyesight was bad or whether he hadn't seen his grandkids because the, these guys were raised in the palace. And another interesting thing is Ephraim is really a worldly guy from Egypt. And he's receiving this big blessing. Okay? So keep that in mind as you see this birthright fulfilled down the road that the picture is that Ephraim uh, was raised in a non-Hebrew house. He was laid, raised in an Egyptian palace. So let's go back to the story. 
Joseph said to his father, not so my father, for this is the firstborn. Uh, right. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a great people. Keep that in mind, that Manasseh was going to be a great people. And he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations, uh, or a melahagoyim. And the promise remains with Ephraim today. So this really significant story that doesn't get told enough, we're going to go into detail and to really understand the heart of this story. Because once you understand that Ephraim's got the blessing and that this blessing uh, from Abraham is there and has been stuck for thousands of years and why it's stuck and what's going to happen. All of a sudden the Bible opens up even more fully than it, uh, it is, than it's been open to us. So um, it's just uh, pretty cool. If you start to see other stories as they relate to this story, and unless you get this story, you're not going to get other stories in the Bible. Okay? So, and we'll go into the detail of what other stories are we talking about. But what we've got here is uh, for, for the next, I'm going to say, 20 minutes, we're going to have a history lesson, which is great for me because I was a history major and a Bible minor. So, uh, but you have to understand the history uh, of the kingdom in order to get this story. So just bear with me. And you should have all of these things on page seven, the Bible timeline. You should have these things in your heart and in your head. So that when you read stories and you hear about a prophecy from Isaiah or a prophecy or something about the judges or something about this or that, you know where it fits in this timeline already. If you know this timeline, timeline in your heart, these stories take on uh, more clear meaning. So let's start with creation in 4000 BC, roughly. Okay, uh, The flood took place roughly 2350. Abraham, 2000 BC. Uh, his son, grandson, great-grandson, 1900 to, 19, to 1700 BC. 1450 BC was when Moses... Uh, led the Hebrews out of Egypt. Uh, so then they're in Canaan. Joshua conquers the land, seven years of conquering, seven years of establishing uh, homes in, uh, in, in what was to become Israel. And then you had a 400-year period of judges. Okay, And so at the end of the, end of the period of judges, uh, you, you come into the book of First and Second Samuel. And so it's a description of the anointing and, uh, of, of Saul, David, Solomon, and it's uh, Samuel's participation in that. And so once again, man looks to Saul, the taller, better-looking guy, uh, to be the king. The same thing happened with David and his oldest brother. They just assumed that the oldest brother was going to be king when it was, in fact, the the youngest son, the eighth son, David, who uh, was to be king. And so Yahweh continues to show this. It just happens time after time that it's his choice, uh, that it's he's looking after people's hearts who will follow him no matter what. 
and that our, our good hearts that are connected to him totally, totally sold out. So you have this 120 years period. I have it starting at 1040 uh, and going to 920. There's variations uh, of a few years, but it's roughly that. But each one of these, um, uh, the, these uh, periods where the king was on the throne was 40 years each. There's no coincidence in that. 120 years total. And so um, the story uh, starts to become very interesting uh, in when Solomon uh, passes away. So this is the, the point of what I'm going to uh, give to you in this history lesson is that Saul lived 40 years, passed it on to David. David lived 40 years, passed it on to Solomon. Solomon uh, builds the temple, uh, does poorly, and uh, was really taken away by uh, non-believing uh, wives and concubines. And um, Yahweh says real clearly in, in 1 Corinthians 8 and following, and that's where this story is, about how disappointed uh, he was in, with Solomon, but he's going to leave the kingdom in Solomon's hand until he dies for the sake of his father David, because, he had, because Yahweh had such a close relationship with David. He's going to wait until Solomon dies, and then we're going to see the kingdom split. So that's where we're going to take up this story in a little bit more detail. The actual kingdom split uh, after Solomon. So, if you go to, uh, if you flip the page, you're going to see this map. So you see a timeline and you see a map on the other side. Okay. Everybody see that? So we're going to be flipping to that map. Um, and we're going to be based there really in just a second. So uh, the other major things that happened on this timeline was that in 722, Assyria takes the house of Israel or Israel and scatters them. And in 586, Babylon takes Judah. So if you get all of those things inside of your head and you know them cold, uh, it really helps you to understand the Bible. So uh, I want to flip this over to now. Now we're looking at the, um, uh, the land of Israel. And you can see a dotted line in the middle. And that shows you that the northern part of, from the uh, dotted line is, is known as Israel. It also had other names. And it's called uh, House of Israel, Northern Ten Tribes, called Ephraim, called Samaria, and it's also called the House of Joseph. Well, right there, if you understand that those northern ten tribes are called those things, you're going to, without knowing anything more, see passages in Zechariah as example and all of a sudden it's talking about a frame and and I my confession is that man I didn't pay much attention to that when I was going to Bible school at Simpson College I'd read that and I just think oh that was just the Jews you know and I didn't really realize the difference between some of those names if you look at the bottom right uh, Judah is known as the house of Judah or and or the southern two tribes so Judah and Benjamin ended up south, also included uh, Jerusalem in there and the, and the Dead Sea. The northern ten tribes, um, 
to give you a reason as to why Israel was also known as Samaria or Ephraim, the largest tribe in the northern 10 tribes uh, was Ephraim. Okay, remember, Ephraim got the blessing about being um, a multitude of people. Well, they were even then uh, the biggest tribe of the northern, northern 10 tribes. So you can kind of put a circle around Samaria, just north of that broken uh, line. And Samaria was the capital of Ephraim. And so you have these interchangeable terms of Samaria because it was the capital of Ephraim and Ephraim was the largest tribe of the northern 10 tribes. So you see, especially in the book of Hosea, but all through um, the northern 10 tribes being described as all of these um, terms in that upper left-hand side. So it's important to know that. Interestingly enough, from 920 to 722, Israel had 20 kings, okay? All of them were evil. It's a really important concept to understand, okay? North, and he just, Yahweh is so cool. He just makes it very clean. It's right in front of us. Some people say that there's 19 on one side, 20 on the other. If you include a split where two kings were kind of going at it at the same time, it comes out 20 and 20. So I prefer doing that because it's just easier. Okay. So that's why sometimes you'll see in the back of your Bible, if you've got a study Bible, 19 verses 20. But the house of Judah had 20 kings also from 920 BC down to 586 BC. They had 20 kings. 10 were good, 10 were evil. There's no coincidence in those two, num all these numbers. It's really just it's showing you, here's the Northern Ten Tribe, pure darkness, pure rebellion, and all evil. And Judah was also not perfect, and they had their problems too, but it was ten good kings, ten evil kings. Okay? It's a great picture that doesn't get told often enough. So here's what happened. when uh, We're going to now read uh, some of the, the story about the split and how it occurred. So we're now at the top of page nine, and uh, we're gonna start to understand the problem. Okay, so the disobedience and the kingdom split. First Kings 11, nine to 13. Now Yahweh was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh and had commanded him that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what Yahweh had commanded. So Yahweh said to Solomon, because you've done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Interesting that he said servant, not son. Okay. And so, in fact, who he would ultimately give it to is Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam was actually from the tribe of Ephraim and he was also an administrator. He wasn't the rightful heir of the throne. So one of the things that you're going to see about the northern ten kingdom and the southern two is that the southern two stayed in covenant with Yahweh. And the northern ten had wrong king, ultimately wrong priesthood, wrong temple, okay, and wrong feasts. So they were completely apostate. So in this northern ten tribes, um, 
Jeroboam, son of Nebat, became the king. And it's a very good story. If you want to read Isaiah, uh, excuse me, 1 Kings 11 through 13, uh, you get an idea of how serious it was. And that um, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, really did some stupid things. He was a, a young man that did not have a lot of wisdom. He took the advice of his young friends and that he was um, more difficult on the entire uh, whole uh, people of Israel, and the Northern Ten rebelled because of it. So uh, if we go back up to this disobedience in the kingdom split, um, in verse 12, it says, Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son, Rehoboam, However, I will not take away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So the one tribe was Judah. Now, actually, in detail, it's two tribes, but the main one tribe was Judah, and that represented the southern kingdom. But if you're going to get picky, it's actually two tribes that were down there, Judah and um, Benjamin, and the half tribe of, of Levi. So... Uh, that was the story. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, did the following things. He set up Dan and Bethel. That's why they're on your map. If you, if you look back at your map on page, uh, that's actually page eight, doesn't have a page number on it, but it's page eight. You see Dan and you see Bethel on there. See those? They're actually, if you drew a line through Dan and Bethel, you kind of come to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's actually closer to Bethel then it looks on the map. Jerusalem's only a few miles from Bethel. So what happened was Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, um, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, was, was no fool. He wasn't a godly man, but he wasn't foolish other than that, in that he set up a temple in Dan and he set up a temple in Bethel. Okay? So at these appointed feasts, when... Uh, the, the people of Israel would come down to Jerusalem, they would, if they were up in the north in Damascus, so Damascus is only 25 miles north of Dan, maybe 30 miles north of Dan, okay? It's really, it's not that far away. So as they're coming down, they're going to hit Dan first, and those people there are going to try to convince them to do their uh, sacrificing at the temple at Dan. And so they're going to try to catch them there and get their money, okay? Because there's a process of buying the right goat, buying the right bull, what have you, and spending money in Dan. Then they're going to do it again in Bethel. And in fact, they had golden calves. So Jeroboam had two golden calves made, one at the temple in Dan, one at the temple in Bethel. But the problem was uh, wrong leader, Wrong priesthood because he had a priesthood of his own that he chose. It wasn't the Levites. Well, the Levites were the only authorized priesthood, okay? So Jeroboam came up with his own priesthood, came up with his own location, came up with golden calves. He came up with a different time also, and he was trying to catch them. Uh, so he probably was having his feasts just a couple of days before the other feasts because they would have been traveling down to Jerusalem, the Israelites, to go to the feasts in Jerusalem. Well, he's trying to catch them early in Dan and Bethel. 
So repeatedly, if you've read a lot of the Old Testament, you hear this phrase, and the sins of Jeroboam, son, son, son of Nebat. Because they were so egregious, they're just bad, if you can say it, bad sins, okay? That he went against Yahweh's feasts. He went against his temple, against his priesthood, etc. So Jeroboam was seen as particularly rebellious in the Bible. And is, is repeated as that. And he's an antichrist figure, okay, also. All the things that Yahweh told Moses to do, uh, Jeroboam did the opposite. So keep that in mind. This is all a setup uh, about the story. So uh, we'll read you this quote here, too. Um, and this is uh, in the middle of page nine. Professor Totten of Yale University, who was a very strong believer, he died in 1908, was quoted, I can never be too thankful to the Almighty that in my youth, he used the late Professor Wilson to show me the difference between the two houses, House of Israel and the House of Judah. The very understanding of this, dif of this difference is the key by which almost the entire Bible becomes intelligible. I cannot state too, too strongly that the man who has not seen that Israel of the scripture is totally distinct from the Jewish people is yet in the very infancy, the mere alphabet of biblical study, and that to this day the meaning of seven-eighths of the Bible is shut to his understanding. So that's a pretty extreme statement, okay? But it definitely opens up your understanding of what's being spoken in Scripture to a greater degree. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the book of Hosea. So Hosea uh, was around 800 um, BC. He was uh, a prophet to the northern ten tribes, and he had a very special role. Well, once you understand the mechanics of the story that I just told you about uh, Jeroboam, and then we read uh, Hosea, uh, you're going to start to see some things unfold here. So Hosea uh, was told by Yahweh to marry a prostitute or a wicked woman. And it says in chapter 1, 2 through 11, and I'm going to read this in a second, this whole story of Hosea represents Yahweh's relationship with the northern ten tribes because he saw the northern ten tribes, Yahweh saw the northern ten tribes as promiscuous, as an unfaithful wife. Okay? So, um, he, and it, this is such an important story that he actually had a prophet really sacrifice his own life, his own expectations, and marry a harlot so that people could see what he was trying to say. He's going to give us an example um, so that we can look at it and go, oh, okay, that must really hurt Yahweh's feelings. Must be painful. Okay. So we're going to skip through uh, Hosea chapters one. We're going to go through some highlights of, of uh, the book of Hosea. It's become one of my favorite books. I really love the book of Hosea. So here it goes. When, when Yahweh began to speak through Hosea, Yahweh said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to Yahweh. So he married Gomer, son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then Yahweh said to Hosea, call him Jezreel, which means scattered seed, because he's ultimately going to scatter the northern ten tribes. So he's giving the kids of Hosea and Gomer names that represent the story. 
Okay. So uh, the second one, um, then Yahweh said to Hosea, when he gave birth to a daughter, call her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. So Hebrew lesson. So th through these 10 uh, series of, of 10, uh, 10 lessons, 10, 10 times that we meet, um, you're going to get a little bit of Hebrew. Okay. So here's a, and I'll tell you what I mean. So low means not in Hebrew. So when you see a low, it's a not. So low ruchamah, not loved. For I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. So this is the Northern 10 tribes. These were rebellious to the King of Judah and uh, he's upset with them, and it was rebellious towards Yahweh. Did not do they didn't do what Yahweh told them to do. Um, I will no longer show love to Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to Judah. So let's stop for a second there. Here's a here's a verse where it's talking about Israel and it's talking about Judah clearly in a different way. Israel is something different than Judah, right? You can see that. I'm not gonna love. Israel, that's the northern ten tribes, but I will love Judah because he's still in covenant with Judah, the southern two tribes. Um, after she had weaned, oh, and I'm sorry, yet I will show love to Judah and I will save them. After she had weaned Lo-Ruchamah, Gomer had another son. Then Yahweh said, call him Lo-Ami. So there's not again, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So let's stop right there before the next sentence, okay? So he's gone in this progression. I'm going to scatter you. Uh, I am not, not going to love you, and you are not my people. He's upset, okay? It's like he's scolding uh, his kids. And so then he does one of the great pivots in the Bible, okay? A pivot is where you stick your foot down and you do a reverse like in basketball. And it says, yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to you, to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. See that? There's the character of Yahweh right there so clearly. On the one hand, he's so frustrated. He's so mad that he had to, in fact, have a guy ruin his life and, and have a relationship with a promiscuous woman and then name all these kids and then he's going to say this is how i feel about you and then one verse later he says yet the israelites will be like the sand on the seashore which cannot be measured so let's hold on for a second does that sound familiar the sand on the seashore that cannot be measured well that's the abrahamic covenant right where'd the abrahamic covenant go abraham isaac jacob Joseph, Ephraim. Who's he talking to here in the northern ten tribes? Ephraim, house of Israel. You follow that? Super important. Okay. So, so now we're going to go through and highlight some of the things in Hosea. So that I'm going to turn my phone off. That's what I'm going to do. Hold on. Um. And we'll get back to this John 21 and the 153 fish, okay? We're going to come back to that in a minute. Um, and maybe even next, uh, the next time we meet. So the people of Judah 
and the people of Israel will come together, in verse 11, it's what it says, they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. So that sounds like that Ezekiel 37 passage that we read on Monday, doesn't it? You catching that, what we just read? People of Judah, people of Israel will come together. It's like the two sticks in his hand in Ezekiel 37. So now we're going to skip ahead, and I want you to see how Yahweh feels about the northern ten tribes and how frustrated he is. So read the book of Hosea. That's a side assignment, okay? But I'm going to hit highlights, but I would really suggest that now you understand the, the context of this. It's going to come alive a little more. So Hosea 2, 5 to 8, she said, this is uh, the northern ten tribes, I will go after my lovers. So the lovers here are other gods. This is going to be Asherah, um, Molech, Shemash, all these other gods that the northern ten was chasing after, who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my, my olive oil, and my drink. Then it's back to Yahweh talking. Yahweh says, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her, this is northern ten tribes, in so that she cannot find her way to these other lovers. She will chase after her lovers, other gods, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, she will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. I'm sorry. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband, that's Yahweh, as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You see that back and forth and how frustrated he is? And he's saying, I'm going to try to stop them so they come back to me so they'll recognize that I'm the source of blessing. So Hosea 2 uh, so this is Yahweh, who continues to be frustrated. He says, I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. So I'm going to stop there for a second. So Yahweh sees all of these things as a super blessing. Okay? And it says it right here. He says, I'm going to stop it because I'm mad at Hosea. Because they're blessings. I will stop all her celebrations. That's the feasts. That's Passover. That's Shavuot. That's Feast of Trumpets, Tabernacles, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. He's stopping them because they don't deserve it. Okay? Can you see that? It's really important. So I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers, other gods. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. So, so here's what he says, in that day, remember we talked about that phrase, in that day, in Malachi, Malachi 4. In that day is now, okay? Our day, 2000, all right? So in that day, I will respond, declares Yahweh. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. So he's giving this story right in the middle of his frustration that there will be ultimate redemption and there will be ultimate completion of covenant. Because if you go back, why? Because if you go back to the Abrahamic covenant, he made the promise to Abraham and his 
birthright all the way down to a frame. That's the generation that he promised through the covenant of pieces that uh, he would do all he could to keep, uh, keep the covenant. So he has to do this because he's true to his own word. Okay. Um, so Hosea three, four to five for the Israelites will live many days without king or priest, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return page 10 now and seek Yahweh, their God and David, their King. Well, wait a second. David's, uh, David's passed away. Okay. So David, their King is symbolic. Uh, so when you see the Ezekiel of the Ezekiel 37 passage or the Isaiah 11 passage talking about a branch, a Davidic branch will come and rule. That's Yeshua. And that's in the millennium. Okay. So that's how David, that's how they, when they, I'm going to read this again with that as an understanding. So this is a very prophetic book and it says uh, afterward, I'll start with Hosea 3, 4, and 5. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Yahweh and to his blessings in, these, in the last days. So I'm going to suggest to you, I hope, hope maybe some of you are getting this, but see this right here, this map? of people awakening and coming back to him in, in his blessings in these last days. Why? Because the feasts, the Sabbaths are blessings. Okay. And so we, in the modern church, we see them as a burden. We see them as, Oh man, thank goodness. We don't have to do those. Right. I mean, that's generally how it, how it's looked at. Once you start doing them, you realize, wow, this is really cool. What great celebration. I would rather do the feasts of God than Halloween, Christmas, etc. Because these are commanded feasts. These are his feasts. So if you're his people and you're doing his feasts, they're a blessing because he shows you truth. He gives you blessing because you're keeping him. So let's keep going with Hosea. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. How many times have we heard that phrase in the modern church? A million, okay? My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge, right? What's the context of that? The knowledge of Sabbath, feasts, and the Torah, okay? So uh, it's never used that way, but that's, that is the context. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priest because you have ignored the law of your God, I also will ignore your children. So he's saying this in 800 BC to the Northern 10 tribes. And he's saying to them, what did he just say to them? You're not gonna, you're, you're, you're gonna go many days without king or prince. Why? Because they're in scattered into different countries. They don't have a king or a prince. No sacrifice or sacred stones without ephod or household gods. There's no guidance. They're gonna be in other countries lost. Okay, And then he says, at the end of days, in that day, the Israelites will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king. They will come trembling to Yahweh and to his blessings in the last days. What are his blessings? 
what he already described that he was going to withhold from them, feasts, Sabbath, etc. So, uh, Hosea 5.3, I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. It's the same person. It's this double, um, Hebrew does that. So, I know all about Ephraim. Israel's not hidden from me. That's the same, it's equivalency phrasing. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. And then he says in one of my favorite passages, Hosea 6, 1 and 2. I love this passage. Come, let us return to Yahweh. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. So let's stop for a second. How did he tear them to pieces? He tore them in half. Northern 10 tribes, southern two tribes. He tore them to pieces. Okay. Um, he will heal us. He'll bring this back together, just like he said in Ezekiel 37. And when I talked about on Monday, the restoration of his family, that's the healing. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. So let's take a second on this. That's so rich. Okay. Remember, we talked about the concept of a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day, okay? Take a look at this. It says, after two days, he will revive us. So Yeshua shows up at zero, okay? And he does this healing, the cross. We're gonna get into that in more detail. And then he says, after two days, he will revive us. 2,000 years later, he's going to revive us. He's going to wake us up, okay? So that on the third day, the millennium, he will restore us so that we be able to live in his presence. What does it say in Revelation 21 that heaven's coming down here so that he will be in our presence? It's a story of the last 3,000 years that was going to come right there in Hosea. It's the 2,000 years from Yeshua to the millennium, and then that 1,000-year period where he's restoring us, he heals the land, he heals the people, so that we may live in his presence. Is that cool? It's so yeah. cool to me, just that those days equal 1,000 years, and we're going to see those again. Re remember that two days, because we're going to see that again in the New Testament, and it's going to be a big wow, all right? So... Uh, Hosea 8, 5, and 8. Samaria, throw out your calf idol. So Samaria is the capital of Ephraim. Ephraim is the biggest uh, tribe in the northern ten. So the calf idol are those two calves, who knows whether they made more of them, that were placed in Dan and in Bethel. My anger burns against them. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like something no one wants. Okay. So he is going to scatter them in 722 BC and he scatters them everywhere and they lose their identity. Okay. Um, Hosea 9, 3, uh, they will not remain in Yahweh's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. So what did we say on Monday? If you're disobedient, you can't stay in the land. Okay. So that's what he's done. He's, he is tossing them into the other nations like some, someone no one wants. So Hosea 9.17, my God will reject them because they have not obeyed him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Okay. 
Hosea 11, 9 and 10. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate a frame again. Here's another pivot. It's, an, it's a turnabout. He's so frustrated. He's definitely putting them under penalty. But ultimately, he is obligated to complete his covenant with a frame. Okay? So he says, for I am God and not a man. Well, I, I'm not going to devastate a frame again. The Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow Yahweh. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. Here's the map, okay? His children will come trembling from the west. I'm going to suggest to you that that's exactly what's going on in this movement in the last 20 years. That he's roared, we've woken up, and we're going to come trembling back to him with humility um, because we realize that we've been disobedient. The people, however, this is Hosea 13, the people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. Okay? So uh, they have to be come under a penalty. So there's a penalty of Judah. Okay? We know that 70-year penalty. It's very famous. It went from like 606 B.C. to 536 B.C. They were in Babylon for 70 years, and then they were brought back. Okay? You also had a penalty for every day that the, the spies grumbled and were fearful and wouldn't believe that they could take the land. The Israelites spent 40 years in the desert, one year for every day. Okay, so Yahweh is a God of penalties. Like it or not, I wish you weren't, I guess, but that's selfish. I can't even say that. Never mind, scratch that. Uh, but he is a God of penalties. That's who he is. That's his character. So that must be a good thing. But he has penalties for things, and he allows that to happen rather than uh, eternal destruction uh, as often as he possibly can. So now we're going to talk about another section of Scripture, which is really critical, and it's called the divorce. So in the middle of page 10, Jeremiah talks about uh, Israel, that's the northern ten tribes, house of Israel, and the southern house of Judah, and about penalties, and about a divorce. So, let's read about that. Jeremiah 3. If a man divorces his wife, and she leaves him, and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? So he's really talking to the northern ten tribes here. During the reign of King Josiah, Yahweh said to me, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? So King Josiah was a southern king, okay, king of Judah. And Yahweh is saying to King Josiah, who was a reformer, have you seen what faithless Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill. That's where they would have sacrifices and, and give offerings. And under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. Sounds like Hosea talk, doesn't it? Sounds we just read this in Hosea. But she did not. And her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. So he's talking of them like their sisters. House of Israel sister, house of Judah sister. And he says, I gave Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. So right there is a huge, huge thing in scripture. He's in covenant 
with Ephraim. Ephraim has the birthright. But he says in a moment in Jeremiah 3, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of her adulteries. How is that possible? Okay, because he is in covenant. In fact, the covenant of pieces where he's the only one who walked through, he's in covenant with Ephraim or Israel. And he just gave Israel her certificate of divorce. And then earlier in that passage, it says, if a man divorces his wife, just like Yahweh divorces Israel, and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Well, according to his own Torah, you can't. So I'm presenting to you a problem, okay, that gets resolved in a beautiful moment in Scripture, but I'm setting you up to show you the problem which Jeremiah describes. So, so let's continue on with it. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. So she's guilty also, but just not as bad as Israel. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, to Judah, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. In spite of all this, her unfaithful sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but only in pretense. So he's still in covenant with Judah, but he's disappointed because Judah's half-hearted. Ten good kings, ten bad kings. Remember that? That is clearly half-hearted. Exactly. Ten good kings, ten bad kings. So we're going to read this passage in Deuteronomy 24, which describes the Torah command that creates the difficulty uh, that Yahweh uh, is in. You can say it that way. He, he resolves it beautifully. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, Yahweh and the house of Israel, because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, Baal, Chemosh, Asherah, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again until after she has been uh, not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of Yahweh. Well, how does that work? Okay. So we'll leave you in a few seconds of, of uh, wondering. We're going uh, to come to this uh, conclusion here, this beautiful conclusion. So um, if you read and review a, a Hebrew wedding, uh, a betrothal is as legally binding as a marriage. And so it talks about uh, the, uh, a marriage. And in fact, that, that Yeshua is going to come back, marry his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb, because he's been betrothed to his people for so long. So let's read that. His people were betrothed to Yahweh at Mount Sinai. Genesis 19 says, Now then, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, obedience, and you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. For these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came out and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which Yahweh had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. That's the marriage contract, the ketubah. In order... For the marriage supper of the Lamb to take place, according to his own word, the Torah, um, the answer to this problem of divorcing somebody that he's in covenant with, 
the groom, Yeshua, had to die and to become a new man in order to marry his returning bride. So I hope you're getting this. So the Torah could not be broken. And so he knew that he had a covenant with Ephraim that was the promise of Abraham, but he had divorced them. And so what had to happen was he had to send his representative to the earth to die, to become a new man, to become eligible to marry and come back into covenant, the Northern 10 tribes. Wow. Yes, it's huge. So once you get that, okay, then all of a sudden the scripture starts to open up. And so what do I mean by that? Okay, we're going to get a, so hang in there. We're going a long time here. We're going to go another half an hour. And so this is just meat. If you need to get a cup of tea or water, whatever, but don't miss this next 20 minutes. Okay. So when Totten, that professor from Yale said, it opens up scripture. Here's part of what he meant. Let's go to John chapter four. And, and we're going to go to the New Testament and the story of Yeshua uh, and the Samaritan woman. So Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Famous story. I'm going to give you um, a description of what this actually means at a whole different level. I had n- never heard this before 15 years ago. And when I did, it just blew me away. I mean, just major goosebumps, like, wow, how could, how could we sit here and not see this? It's right in front of us. So I want to set this up a little bit. So one of the things that is really cool about the Bible is that it's thematically sound. If you see a theme of washed linens or clean clothes, you'll see that theme in different stories with the meaning that it's obedience. It's coming back under the, in submission to God. It's um, uh, like it says in Revelation 19, the preparation of the bride is uh, the righteous acts of the saints. Okay, so it's coming back under obedience. So that's a theme. There's another theme, and there's lots of themes in scripture, but here's one that I never thought of until these last 15 years. And, and so if you look at the patriarchs, they met their bride at a well. Okay, we don't know that about Abraham, but Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all met their bride at a well. Okay, so if we begin to start thinking thematically in our walk and study, um, I hope that you're going to start to incorporate some of these um, themes and remember them in your heart and mind so that you, when you run across it in a different spot that might be unexpected, it'll connect you with truth. Okay, so here's what I mean. Yeshua meets a woman at a well. So ding, 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 ding. If we're really studying deeply and our, and our hearts and minds get opened up, the first thing that we might think of is, oh, is, is this his bride? Okay, just a thought. You know, if you're thinking outside the box, and if you see that she's a Samaritan woman, that's the capital of a frame, which is the biggest tribe of the northern 10 tribes. So 
The Samaritan woman, just like the whole book of Hosea, is represented by, a, she's the promiscuous woman. Okay? So let's read through this story with different eyes so that all of a sudden the New Testament in some of its, a couple of its major stories comes to life in a new way. So here's what it says. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sichar, uh, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. So he's already tying us into this story. Okay. Uh, because Joseph got the, Jacob had the blessing. Joseph got the blessing and Ephraim's got the blessing, which is where it was then and where it still is today. And Jacob's well was there. So Yeshua, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Yeshua said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples, now we're going to page 11, disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because they were rebellious. For you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Yeshua answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst again. But the water that I will give him will, will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. So let me stop here for a second. So if she represents a frame, if frame is scattered, okay, all over the world, and in fact, in the last 2,000 years, uh, they've lost their identity, and they've, they've lost an understanding of who the Messiah is. So the Messiah shows up and says, I'm giving you water, okay? So the Samaritan woman us as a group of scattered people responds. This is good news. The Samaritan woman hears the truth and responds to it. So I would say to you, that's what's happened in the last 2000 years. We have heard the truth and we responded to it. Okay. So he says, uh, let's keep going. Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Yeshua said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, Chemosh, Asherah, Baal, Molech, okay? There's five main actual gods that the northern tribes followed. So her husbands or her lovers, as described in Hosea, are other gods, Okay, And the one whom you now have is not your husband, because he's the husband. Yeshua is the rightful husband. Uh, and she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Yeshua said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming that neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, so it's interesting. He tells her, you worship what you don't know. In the last 2,000 years, we've worshipped what we haven't known. Because that's not our inherited truth and background, okay? 
And here's, here says something really, it's a, it's a great verse, uh, but an hour is coming and now is. Why would he say that? That's a strange way of saying it, isn't it? An hour is coming and now is. So to me, that means it's two things. There's going to be a future time when this is going to occur. And right now it's occurring. Okay. And so that people, that true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. For such people, the, the father seeks to be his worshipers. So I would say to you, that means we worship Yeshua, Jesus, and we keep the truth. Okay, so spirit and truth is faith and grace, uh, uh, faith and works. It's Yeshua and the Torah. It's written in living Torah. Okay, that happened in the first century, and it's happening now, and in between, hardly ever. Okay, that's what I think that means. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. So you learn this in Bible school. This is the first declaration of his messianic identity. But why they don't tell you is why. Okay. He knows that he came to regather the lost sheep. And so the first time that he expresses his messianic identity is to the Samaritan woman. Isn't that cool? It's way cool. Yeah. So, cool. Um, so, and there's more. Okay. He says, uh, Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. So I, I just want to stop for a second. This is Steve's deeper interpretation of this. But if we're the scattered Samaritans, okay, many of the city of Samaritans believed in Yeshua, Jesus, because of the word of the, of the woman who testified. So the testimony of a frame is Jesus, okay? And I say that intentionally because they didn't understand the full identity of Yeshua. Okay, and there's a response, and many Samaritans responded because that's how Yahweh set up the whole plan. This was to be the 2,000 years of the era of the Gentiles, of explaining to them uh, what salvation is. So when the Samaritans came to Yeshua, they were asking him to stay with them. So catch this, and he stayed there two days. It's the same <laughs> two days as the Hosea 6, 1 and 2. So he stays, he has stayed with us for 2,000 years. It's more proof that we're this group of people. Many more believe because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. And there's one other phrase where that's used. It's an interesting connection. And, um, and it's a different language. It's one of the few times where it's a different language other than, than Greek or Hebrew. But Zaphonath Panea is actually um, Egyptian. And that phrase means savior of the world. That's the phrase that Joseph was called. Joseph was called Zaphonath Panea. Okay? And so is Yeshua. So isn't that amazing? 
you have this meaning of the Samaritan, you know, Yeshua and the Samaritan woman at the well that has a whole nother layer of meaning if you understand the book of Hosea and if you understand that he had to be faithful to his covenant, which ultimately is in the hands of the Samaritan woman. And it ultimately is in a frame. Okay? So, everybody doing okay? You want to keep going? Yeah. All right. All right. Here we go. So, the next story in the New Testament that is a story that has another layer of meaning that is about this same story is the prodigal son. And so in Luke 15, Yeshua continued. Uh, it says, there was a man who had two sons, house of Israel, house of Judah. His younger one said to the father, father, give me my share of the estate. Who's the older one? Uh, Reuben. Okay. Uh, and Judah. Uh, and those were the older guys. Who's the younger son? Ephraim. So he divided his property uh, between them. Not, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So he scattered himself. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating. So the, Samar the, so the, uh, the prodigal son was out eating, you know, longing for unclean food. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have, ha have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and it, uh, against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off. Okay, so I think that phrase is actually important. So Yahweh sees us when we're still a long way off. I'm going to put this map up again here. Here we're a long way off. Uh, from Ben, we're 11,000 miles away from Jerusalem. Okay? 14,000 the other way, 11,000 the other. And it says we are 11,000 miles away. And he sees him when he's still a long way off. And his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So his compassion is for us. Okay? We're a long way off. He loves us so much. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him. And kissed him and said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. You think that was a dirty robe or do you think that was a clean robe? <laughs> clean robe. Clean robe because the prodigal son is coming back under the father's authority. He's coming back under obedience. Uh, even Paul says it, you know, don't put on your old clothes. You're a new being, a new self. Put on your new clothes. Um, so, interesting how the rest of this goes. Put a ring on his finger. Some people say that's the ring of the Sabbath. And sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. I'm going to suggest to you that that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, listen to the rest of the story. It's great. Uh, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
he was lost and is found, just, just like Ephraim. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son, Judah, was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. They kept the Sabbath. They kept the feast. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, so there's the prostitute reference to, to uh, Hosea, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Isn't that cool? Just a great story that has, it's, it's certainly, uh, I was a prodigal son of sorts. And so many people relate to this as individuals and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's also a corporate story. And we're just now seeing this because it's the end of days. He's opening our eyes to the whole story, the whole story of the kingdom. So uh, I just want you to, to know that this story was known by Paul, known by the apostles. These guys all knew this. They know this story, and they know that uh, that, that hadn't been restored yet. And so I'm going to show you a couple places where this is referenced. If you look at Romans 9.22, this is at the bottom of 11. Uh, Paul says, What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? So I'm going to suggest to you, because the rest of the Torah story will tell you, that the objects of his wrath was a frame. It's the only people that he had divorced. Okay? So, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for his destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Objects of his mercy is Judah, whom he prepared in, in advance for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And then he quotes Hosea. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in that very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So Paul knows this story. He references that in the whole section of Romans 9 through 11, which is talking about the grafting in together, that the, the nap and the wild uh, trees would be grafted together. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Um, and so if you go to the end of that section, uh, Romans eleven twenty-five, the only way to have it <laughs> make sense is if you understand this story. Okay. So, it says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hearting in part until the full number or fullness of the Gentiles, 
the melahagoyim, that's the same phrase as, as what related back in Genesis, has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. So in other words, all Israel, meaning northern ten, southern two. Okay? So that's what it's referencing. If you read it like all Israel will be saved, he had just said only a remnant will be saved. Okay? So it, it has to be the remnant that is based on the children of the promise, that they believe and have given their hearts and their lives to Yahweh completely. And so uh, it's a strange passage, Romans 9 through 11, but if you understand this story, it helps explain it. So if you reread Romans 9, 10, 11, after understanding Hosea and Ephraim and who's got the birthright, it's helpful. So I want to finish it off for you. And we're going to go through the penalties of Judah and Ephraim. I already mentioned this. Let's start by establishing the idea or theme of Yahweh putting his people under a penalty. 40 years in the wilderness. November, uh, Numbers 14. For 40 years, one year for each one of the 40 years you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. Okay? So that's his character. That's what he does. That's what Yahweh does. And then he says, for Judah, this, this is shown in Jeremiah 24 through 29. Chapters 24 through 29. This is what Yahweh says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. And then it goes in and says, for I know the plans I have for you in that famous passage. So it shows that uh, all of Israel had a penalty. Judah had a penalty. And now for Ephraim, Ephraim also has a penalty. So this is the kicker here. And this is amazing. So, the penalty for Ephraim, you would think, just generally, is going to be more severe than for Judah, because Judah's still in covenant. And Ephraim, he's really upset with Ephraim, because Ephraim had 20 evil kings. Judah had 10, 10 good kings, 10 bad kings. So the penalty of Ephraim is more severe. So Hosea 13, 16 says, the people of Samaria must bear their guilt. And then in Ezekiel 4, 4, Yahweh says to Ezekiel, then lie on your left side and put on the sin of the people of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin, and for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So for 390 days, you will bear the sin of the people of Israel. Okay, well, that's 390 years, okay? So um, I want to keep reading. So in Leviticus 26, it talks about rebellious people. And it says in the Torah, If in spite of these things you do not accept my correction, but continue to be hostile toward me, that was certainly the northern ten tribes, I myself will be hostile towards you and will afflict you for your sins seven times over. So Ephraim has a penalty of 390 years. And there's a multiplier in the Torah, which says, if you're still rebellious and if you're still not turning your heart to me, I'm going to multiply it times seven. So I want you to consider this, that if you take that penalty of 390 years times seven, it's 2,730 years. Okay. So if you look at the start of the Assyrian exile, it actually started in 734 BC and it ended in 722. Now, if you take that start number add 2,730 years to it, then the year is 1996. 
okay, which is the start of this map. None of these places were here before 1996, maybe a handful, maybe five, 10. But before 1996, none of these pop-ups were here. Since 1996, and I'm gonna to suggest to you that the penalty of a frame is over, and what's the penalty? We have been able to have the blessing of seeing the living Torah, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, okay? But we've been penalized to be blocked from the truth, the written Torah. We've been blocked from exactly what he said in Hosea. For 2,730 years, we have not kept the Sabbath. We have not kept his feasts. And we have not participated in those blessings. We've been veiled, okay? Starting in 1996, that veil went up. And now we're able to see clearly, and we're walking in his ways. And that is one crazy, awesome story. Okay, and so that's what's going on. We're on the verge of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We've wakened, awakened in the West, and he's turned us on to his feasts and his Sabbath and his Torah, and we're excited about it. And we know that everybody's going to be keeping these in the millennium. It says so. And we'll talk about that in future weeks. But we get to be forerunners. For some reason, he's chosen us to trust us with his truth, trust us with his Torah that's been neglected. And we're dusting it off just like Josiah did when Hilkiah found the scroll and we've rediscovered the scroll. We've gotten past the penalty of a frame and we're about to enter in really what's a double blessing. Speaking of that, in, uh, in Micah, you hear Bethlehem, Bethlehem, referenced as Bethlehem Ephratah, right? You remember that phrase, Bethlehem Ephratah? Uh, Ephratah is the singular of Ephraim. Right. Okay, so Ephratah means bless. Ephraim, Ephraim, means blessings, double blessing. And so uh, we're in that, we've been in this period of blessing. Here we are in the United States, the most blessed place on the earth for the last 300 years. And we're this multitudinous people coming from all over. Remember, Adam was, uh, Abraham was promised that he'd be a, the father of many nations. Well, here we are, many nations in the United States. And we're the younger brother. So I don't know how far to go with this. I'm going to suggest to you that this might fit. Who might be the older brother? Manasseh. Remember, Manasseh would also have a blessing. Who's the older brother of the United States? Great Britain. Okay, so the United Kingdom, which has tons of people in it that are named Danielson, Simonson. These are all son of Simon, son of Daniel. Uh, you have all these tribal names that are in, um, uh, in the UK. Okay, so where did those tribes go? We don't know. We don't have to get all tied up in that because it's not about DNA. Uh, uh, we need to be the children of the promise. That means believe in him no matter what. Uh, and the seed is not passed on because of a DNA issue. Uh, if we are the, uh, the lost tribes scattered uh, out there, uh, what this shows 
is his sovereignty and it shows his plan and it shows his goodness and his ability to keep his covenant shows his amazing character. It doesn't give us the right to be saved because that comes from our faith in Yeshua and his death on the cross. So uh, that's the story uh, of identity of, of who we are, of what time it is and what he's about to do for us and what the marriage supper of the lamb is and what, and part of the reason why he had to die and come back as a new man was because of this covenant that he had with a frame. And so it just gives a deeper meaning to the cross. It gives a deeper meaning to what he's doing. It gives a deeper meaning to, to this. It's pretty cool to know that you're talked about in scripture. You know, it's one thing to read truth and go, well, Yes, that's really cool. I think that's very, you know, Confucius says this, okay? And, it's a, and it's, a, it's a bit of truth. But to see yourself in scripture is a whole nother level of excitement, of understanding what hour it is, understanding what your purpose is, understanding the history of the relationship with Yahweh to us. So, you know, some people uh, see this as replacement kind of thinking. And we don't see that at all. We're joined together with our brothers Judah. And so uh, we don't take away um, from what people are doing right now, what, uh, what their Jews are doing with the feast. We join them, just like it says in Romans 9 through 11. And also just what it says in, in Ephesians 2, when it says you were formerly Gentiles, but now you are part of the Commonwealth of Israel. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that we'll talk about uh, in, in week three. So we actually got through this lesson, which is a long one. And the rest of them are usually hour and 20, hour and a half, something like that. Um, but uh, any questions before we wrap it up? Or is, that's just a ton of information. It's a lot. Really good. Yeah. Yeah. Was that? Is that it easy? was. No, I was agreeing with Jan. She said it was really good. Yeah. Really good. Okay. Cool. Awesome. Helps the second time you hear it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. They say that you haven't read a book unless you read it twice, and uh, <laughs> that's true of this story. And now you get a chance to go back to these minor prophets, and then also to the majors, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that talk about all this, and then you you can have a more clear view and an understanding of what they're saying and that those books are for now and for their, they're the last generation and they speak specifically to us because either we're descendants of them and I believe we are, a bunch of us are, I don't know how many, or we attach ourselves to the story. Right. And to be an adopted son, way, it's, it's <laughs> a way, it's a really, uh, it's just a privilege to be an adopted son in his kingdom. So whether we're adopted sons or recaptured natural sons, no problem. You know, we come to him in faith and we come to him as children of the promise in our faith in his plan. So um, if there's nothing else, uh, we will see you uh, next Monday at two o'clock uh, with lesson number three. And that should be about an hour and 20 minutes. Okay. Let's Thank you, Steve. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank See you, you guys on Shabbat. Shabbat meeting. Yeah. yeah. See you. Awesome. Okay, love you guys.
Bye-bye. Love you all. Love you all. That was great.